if I were to ask you to list something on the back of your bulletin, which I won't ask you to do, but if I were, what would you list as the biggest problems in your prayer life? What are the biggest problems that you encounter in your prayer life? Is it uh, distraction? Maybe you start to pray and, and your mind gets flooded with all sorts of things that are going on. And you just seem to bounce all over the place and it's hard for you to, to stay focused. Maybe it's distraction. Maybe, maybe it's unanswered prayer. And you say, you know, I, I really, really believe I, I need to pray, but I don't see anything happening. I don't, I don't see any answer to my prayers. And maybe that is one of your biggest problems in your prayer life. It's just unanswered prayer. Or maybe prayer answered the way that you would rather it not be answered. Maybe it's for you not knowing what to say. I sit down to pray. And I, I'm not sure what God really wants to hear. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, you know, I, I know how to talk to, to my boss, and I know how to talk to my coworkers. I know how to talk to my spouse or my children or my parents. I, I've gotten some practice with that. I'm not sure what God wants me to say. Or maybe you don't know how to say it. You've got a lot of things on your mind. And you think, you know, if, if I really said this the way that, that it is ready to just come out of my mouth, I think God would kill me. I think that would be it. Those would be the last words I'd ever speak. And nobody would know why I died except God. Maybe you're that way. You don't know how to say what you want to say to the Lord. Maybe, maybe you feel as if difficult problem, the biggest problem in your prayer life is you just think it's kind of pointless. Look, I live my life here on earth. Why am I trying to do anything with some God or higher power or whatever it may be? And you maybe just see it as a little pointless. Maybe you tried it in the past and you say, I didn't really see any benefit from it. What would be the biggest problems in your prayer life? I've got a story here. The person will remain nameless, though those who are related to him will know, of a problem that occurred in, in prayer. From 1990, as a matter of fact, when Southeast Missouri State, this is an article in the paper, for its first practice, following Christmas break in 1990, a freshman pitcher was unable to answer the bell because of a sprained ankle. No. He didn't injure his ankle working out over the holidays. As it turned out, he was kneeling to pray during a church service when his leg fell asleep. As he got up to return to his seat, he lost his balance and sprained his ankle. This brings up the question of whether it's possible to have too much prayer. Think about that. It caused a problem in prayer. Prayed long enough to where his leg fell asleep and couldn't play that freshman season at SEMO. I happen to know that guy. And uh, he tells the story much better than that. <clears throat> but you know, you might not have a sprained ankle that, that you list as one of your major problems in prayer. Maybe your legs don't fall asleep from kneeling so long in prayer. But Scripture, as we'll see this morning, highlights the real problems, potential problems that we all can face in prayer. And thankfully, it doesn't just leave us there with, hey, don't do this and don't do that. But as we'll see, the instruction of Jesus gives us teaching on what to do, and what not to do. So we're going to address this morning the problems that Jesus saw in prayer and what his solutions were for them. Now, I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. 
Matthew chapter 6, and I want you to hold your place there. Guys, do I need to go to the other one? We, we keep, what do you think? We're good? Okay, all right. Matthew chapter 6, and I, I want you to hold your place there. I'm going to read you sort of our theme verse for this particular series that we're doing from Luke. You hold your place in Matthew 6. Let me read you one verse in Luke. You'll see this on the screen. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, this is about Jesus. He was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's really our goal through this whole series. I mentioned last week, our goal is not for us to, to, uh, to learn anything about prayer that doesn't emanate from the Scripture, and particularly in this series, looking at what Jesus taught on prayer. I'm not here to give you 10, you know, 10 tips to a better prayer life or 10 tips to getting all your prayers answered or anything like that. I just want us to learn from Jesus how it is we are to pray. What are we to pray about? How are we to to utter those words. Last week we looked at the priority of prayer and how for Jesus prayer was a, a very, very high priority in his life. He often got away by himself, the scriptures say. And, and so I, I want us to, as we move through this series, uh, to, to learn how to pray, to learn from the master of prayer. And so we see in, in Matthew chapter 6 a parallel scripture to that. Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 5. Jesus is here in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, and he is giving them a variety of instruction, and he comes to the point where in, in verse 1 he begins to talk about hypocrisy versus real Christianity and what your heart is to be like and so on. So he addresses the idea of, of giving in verses 1 through 4, and then in verse 5 he gets to the idea of, of prayer. Look with me in verse 5. He says, Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you that they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Now, right after this, as we'll look at beginning next week, He launches into what we have now come to call the Lord's Prayer. But He gives some basic foundational instruction before He teaches them a model prayer on the heart behind what they're praying. So He says here, don't be like the hypocrites, don't be like the idolaters. Don't be like them, he says. There are some strong commands that Jesus is giving here about what not to do in prayer. And then there's a command about what we should be doing. Now, I know that many of you are praying people. In fact, over the last couple of weeks, you have helped me to recognize that. There were 79 of you uh, who either online or through the little paper handout completed our prayer survey. So thank you for doing that. I, I really appreciate that. It's interesting that... That some of, I won't take the time this morning to read you all of them, but I'll integrate those as we move forward. But some of the statistics that came from that particular study. Now, I want you to know that I had some great help this week. Some college students helped me out to break this down, not only as a total, but in each age bracket. And it's interesting to note the differences between the ages. Some that I expected, some that maybe I didn't. But here's some total statistics from this survey. Out of, out of 79 responses, 48% of those who responded pray more than once each day. So almost half of those who responded. Now, that may be representative of our entire church. It may not. It's not a scientific study. But 
probably pretty accurate. 48% pray more than once each day. 27% pray once a day. Now, I would imagine that for many of you, if that's you, you probably have a time either in the morning or at night where you dedicate to prayer, and that's your prayer time each day. 19% pray a few times a week. 19%. So the overwhelming, and if not, if not the vast majority, are praying on a regular basis, whether that be a few times a week, once a day, or more than once a day. We have represented in those surveys a, a praying church. Now, there was a question on there, if you didn't see it, or have forgotten about what's the most important purpose of your prayer life. That was interesting to me, to, to note the responses there. 38%, this was the highest percentage, believe that seeking God's guidance is the most important purpose in your prayer life, 38%. 20% say the most important purpose in prayer is to thank God for your blessings. And 13%, these were the three highest, say that having a greater intimacy with God is most important. Then we get to the part where I ask you about prayers being answered. Are they always answered, often answered, sometimes, seldom, or never? 42% of those who responded said that prayers are often answered. Often. I don't know how often, but you considered it often. 33% say that prayers are sometimes answered. And 16% said that prayers are always answered. We had very few responses other than that. We had maybe one or two in each category of never, uh, and we had uh, one or two in the seldom. But for the most part, we have a praying church. Now, I can't stand here and say that that is absolutely, we just need to close up this series and say, well, let's just go home. We're already praying. But I can say this, that no matter how much we pray, no matter the purpose of our prayer life, whether it's totally pure or not, no matter how often we see our prayers answered, we are not immune from the, the dangers and the potential problems that Jesus highlights in this passage. So I commend us for being people of prayer. And I hope that through this, that what we will not do is say, well, look, we, we, we got this. We already know all of this. It's a temptation for me. I, I assume it's probably for you as well. So let's approach this this morning as understanding that, you know what, though we might be a praying people, though we may pray for sometimes at least the right reasons, and we may quite often see our prayers answered, what can we learn from Jesus, the master teacher on prayer? Jesus here, I believe, lists several problems, potential problems in prayer. You'll see those on the back of your bulletin on the screen and kind of follow along. And, and they're very clear here in this, in this particular passage of Scripture. The first is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. He says, verse 5, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by people. What are those hypocrites? That's a word that simply refers to an actor on a stage playing a part. The appearance of being something that you're not. Now, I could ask you for a definition on a hypocrite, and you could tell me just that. They say one thing, but they're really doing another. So the essential identity of, of hypocrites is that they pretend to be something they're not. And in this case, and in, for our purposes, we're talking about folks, Jesus was as well, who pretend to be spiritually mature, but their, their inward devotion doesn't match that. You would see them and they would appear to be the most spiritual people on the planet. They know just what to say at the right time and all of those things. And man, when they pray, just listen to them. But as Jesus said in the scripture in Mark chapter 7, he said of the Pharisees, 
and unfortunately, pharisaical behavior has not gone away completely. He said, they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Hmm. What do they do? Verse 5 highlights that as well. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. These were usual places of prayer. It's not unusual for somebody to pray in a synagogue or to even have a, 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 some sort of religious experience there on the street corners where people met. That's where they talked. And so it might naturally uh, sort of emanate from that that you would pray. And yet what they did was not for pure purposes. They didn't go to the synagogue just to pray and connect with God. They went to the synagogue, it says, to be seen by people. They did those things to get attention. They knew that if they were in the synagogue, they knew if they were on the street corner, they'd have immediate access to a big crowd. People would gather. Now Jesus here, and I think we need to be careful, he's not prohibiting all public prayer. He himself prayed publicly. So if he were prohibiting all public prayer, then he would have broken his own law. We're not talking about that we, we shouldn't pray in public at all. Don't misunderstand. What he's going for is, is not them praying in public or even with people around, but, but for abusing that and doing it in such a way that they could get attention from those who were impressed by those kinds of things. They, they pray, he says, but their eyes and their minds are not set on God, but on the crowd and on themselves. And he says they love it. I, I, don't miss that. They don't do it just out of habit. They don't do it just because they don't know any different. He says they love to pray that way. They love it. Not only are they hypocrites, but they enjoy being a hypocrite. Now, none of us would admit that today. I won't call you out. I hope you don't call me out. But what do they love? They love getting attention. They love being noticed for their spirituality. They love impressing others, getting that sort of response. They don't pray for, their, for prayer's sake, but they, they pray so, so they can gain some sort of impression with their friends and neighbors. They gain admiration from that apparent devotion. They love making an appearance. They love having that spiritual image. You know anybody like that? Know anybody who depends on who they're around? Boy, they come to church, and particularly if they, they, they shake hands with a pastor, or they put that spiritual image on and kind of straighten up just a little bit. I'm looking around so nobody thinks I'm talking about you. All right, just relax. I'll look at the back wall. But you know what I'm saying. Boy, we, we do that. Isn't that the case? And we just kind of make a spiritual appearance, sort of like those actors on the stage. They wait for the, for the crowd to arrive, for the curtain to go up, and for the spotlight to come on, and it's showtime. And let me tell you, it looks good. They know how to do it. These folks that Jesus is talking about likely prayed and made their spiritual appearances in such a way that the immature Christian probably couldn't tell the difference. So they got away with it. But Jesus knew their hearts. And he calls them out. And don't think that there weren't some hypocrites standing around who didn't like what he had to say. They liked attention, appearance. They liked applause. He says, he says they do it to be seen by people. And he says, I assure you, They've got their reward. It turns out that what they were doing, as you, you look in this particular sermon, Jesus goes on. As, as soon as this is, this is interesting, don't miss this connection. As soon as he gets done talking about prayer and the purity in it and the model prayer, he goes on to fasting and how we should be pure in our fasting and, and all our devotion is to God and don't do things for the applause of people and so on. And then he says in verse 19 of chapter 6, 
Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, most of the time, don't we associate that with stuff, with our things? But you realize that Jesus comes right out of talking about not being hypocritical and gaining the applause of people into don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Some of our treasures on earth include the attention, the applause, the appreciation we can get from other people if we appear to be spiritual. He says all that stuff collects dust and it gets you nothing in heaven. Why does he say that? Because they've got their reward and it's all they'll ever get, he says. They also gain some advantage. I won't take the time to go to the particular passage, but Matthew chapter 23, Jesus rails on the Pharisees. You want to hear Jesus be kind of upset with some people and, and put them in their place and tell them the gospel truth, so to speak? <laughs> he does it to the Pharisees, and it is glorious. It's wonderful, and it's a great model of how to speak the truth in love, but to speak the truth. And he tells them, and talking about the Pharisees, that what they do, they do for an advantage. They do so that they can gain something for their own interest. Besides, who wouldn't trust these people who appear to be so spiritual, who in their prayers are wonderful? They knew they could receive gifts and gain control over people because of their spirituality. So I'd like for you this morning to raise your hand if you're, if you're a hypocrite. Right, everybody? No, okay. No, 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 man, we had some hands go up. I love it. All right. Well, my hand went up. Now listen. But isn't it true, though? that often we, we do things for the very same reasons. We have no fewer people playing a part on a spiritual stage today than Jesus did back in his time. And it's unfortunate, but it's true. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes we have our public devotion outpacing our private devotion. Sometimes prayer and devotion to the Lord make an appearance on Sundays, but seldom appear anywhere else. Sometimes we're more worried about what the pastor or the church thinks than what God thinks about us. Sometimes it's possible to go to church and to pray and to do all these things for the same reasons that the Pharisees did, not to worship God, but to gain for ourselves some reputation of being spiritual. Now, I want to speak real quick to those who are young, maybe in college, maybe in high school. And I'll tell you one way that, that this can be abused, okay? And, and ladies in particular, pay attention. I know that, that many of the, the young folks that are coming this morning want to find a person that you can live your life with in a marital relationship that is the kind of person God wants for you. But be careful. Because one of the tools, now ladies, I tell you all this in particular, one of the tools that can easily be used to gain some sort of advantage is the appearance of spirituality. If that guy who you think a lot of just exudes spirituality, he's at everything that should be a part of a Christian's life, and you listen to him pray, and oh, man. But get to his heart and understand him and take time to allow the Lord to give you discernment in those areas because it can very easily be used as a manipulative tool to gain some advantage over you, praying to impress a boyfriend or girlfriend and so on. We learned that very early, it seems. I came across a story this week, maybe you saw the video, of a four-year-old Pentecostal preacher. You seen this? Raise your hand if you, if you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Here's, here's what the article said. Dubbed the pint-sized preacher, Canon Tipton first took to the pulpit of his family's Pentecostal church in Mississippi at just 21 months old. 
Now four years old, he has attracted millions of YouTube viewers with his dramatic sermon delivery. Cannon's preaching style is similar to many other leading Pentecostal evangelists. He shouts and waves his hands and paces back and forth before wiping his forehead with a handkerchief. And he does. I saw the video. Damon Tipton, Cannon's father, called his son's preaching a phenomenon in an interview with, with the Today Show. His father believes that Cannon has been called to preach, but others seem to believe he is just imitating what he has seen from other people. I have no idea. I don't go to that church. I don't know these people. But I fear for that young little boy that what he will learn is not devotion to the Lord, but how to put on a good show and get attention. And we have to be very, very careful as parents and as a church with all these children and young people that God has blessed us with that we make sure that what we teach them is not how to gain attention for the appearance of spirituality, but what we teach them is true and utter devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't say what this four-year-old preacher will turn out to be. I have no idea. He may be as legitimate as anybody we've seen. My prayer is that in my parenting and in our church that we will not teach our children just to put on a show to get applause and to be patted on the head and say, isn't that great? But we'll teach them true devotion to Jesus Christ because hypocrisy is a great temptation in the Christian life, particularly in prayer and what we do in public. Jesus goes on to highlight another one, another potential problem, and that's babbling. Now just write that word down and you're thinking, babbling? Well, that's what the scripture uses. He says in verse 7, when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters. Now, that word babbling is just exactly what it means. You just go on and on for no particular reason. The King James says, using vain repetitions. The ESV, the English Standard Version, says, do not heap up empty phrases. And the Good News Bible says, do not use a lot of meaningless words. Prayers where the heart and the mind are not connected and engaged are meaningless words, vain repetitions. They're repetitive, maybe long-winding, maybe nice-sounding, maybe they're impressive, but they have no meaning. They're mindless and mechanical. And the emphasis, especially as you see, if you, if you have a King James Version of the Bible and you've read this before, the emphasis is not on repetition. The emphasis is on the word vain, pointless, meaningless, mindless, mechanical repetitions. I think of the Charlie Brown teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, that's what I think of. Blah, blah, blah. That's what I think of with these kinds of prayers. You know anybody like that? Mindless, mechanical, just this, this recitation of some prayer that they've learned and they, they begin to, to pray that over and over. That's what young people see through and they hate it. Oh, they hate it. Jesus here is not prohibiting repetition. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed three times, the Bible says, using the same words. Not about repetition. Because Jesus later will encourage perseverance in prayer, to pray over and over. What he's considering here is speaking or repeating prayers without thinking, without our minds and our hearts being engaged, without really meaning the words that we're saying. We might even use a lot of nice-sounding words, but we give no thought to them. And that's what he's prohibiting against. You know, it's possible to say a lot of words in prayer and never pray possible to say a lot of words in prayer and never pray. Possible to use a lot of religious jargon, sort of insider language, and you know, stuff you think God really likes to hear. 
Sounds good to us, sounds good to the people standing around us or listening, but those prayers never reach God's ears because they have no connection to our heart. So when you pray a prayer, whether it's from your own words, whether you repeat a prayer, whether you have a prayer guide in front of you and you pray exactly what's written on a piece of paper, the point is not those things. The point is that the words you speak come from a, from, from a person whose heart and mind are both engaged. And it's interesting. I find it very interesting that he talks about this, don't babble on like idolaters, and then gives us the Lord's Prayer. What is the most repeated prayer in history? The Lord's Prayer. I served as a chaplain for two years for the Pleasure Ridge Park football team in Louisville, Kentucky, my alma mater. You know what prayer they prayed before every game? The Lord's Prayer. You know how much meaning that had for most of those guys? None. Why? Vain repetition. Hearts and minds weren't connected. They didn't know the Lord. It didn't make any difference. Maybe it's a good luck charm to them. I have no idea. But it's interesting that Jesus goes on to give us this Lord's Prayer, not for the purpose of just repeating mindlessly, but to give us a great model because he just says right before it, don't repeat things mindlessly. Engage your heart. Engage your mind. So when are we guilty of this? Maybe when we pray the same old thing all the time in the same pattern. Maybe when we can pray and we never think about the words we say, there's stuff coming out of our mouth, but we, have, we just prayed it and had no idea. Or maybe when we add at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name, but we've not prayed according to anything that Jesus would want to put his name on. <laughs> we just tack it on there because the Bible says pray in Jesus' name. Well, all right, we'll do that. Isn't it interesting how we are guilty of these things as well? And then Jesus gives us a third one. A third potential problem, and that is manipulation. Manipulation. Hypocrisy, babbling, manipulation. He says in verse 6, actually, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 7, When you pray, don't babble like idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Many of the people Jesus was referring to thought that wordiness would equal a response from God. The pagan belief, these idolaters, these Gentiles, as some of your versions may say, were folks who believed that they had to sort of go on and on and on to wake up their gods and get their attention and then keep going on and on and on and on to keep their attention and convince them that this really was something that they should grant. They believed that long prayers were good ones. The longer the prayer, the more spiritual the person and the more likely a favorable response from whatever deity they were praying to. They also were convinced that, that their words carried some sort of magical power. That if they just said the right words in the right combination in the right order, then that would spark their particular God to action. And that wasn't just a temptation for those who worshipped that pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, but it was also a temptation for the Jewish people because there was one rabbi who said, whoever is long in prayer is heard. Isn't that a temptation? Now, how do we do that today? We look for a formula. We look for some fancy words to use. We try to, maybe you try to pray in the Greek. You just figure, if I just use the words that were originally written down in the Scripture, then I'm telling you, God speaks Greek, so He is going to respond. God speaks it all, so I'm not sure the Greek is going to really work for you, but interesting we try those things maybe we think that that if we just have some power words or magic words or really long biblical fancy kind of words that God is going to respond to those things maybe we still retain the idea that a long prayer is a good one and only the good prayers are long ones 
Jesus, however, he says in verse 8, don't be like them. Our prayers are not prayed to manipulate God by our long words and fancy sentences, by the words that we can use that somehow we think will convince him to do something. Long prayers are, are not the path to the heart of God. He's not impressed, nor does he keep statistics on how long our prayers are. And all of a sudden, if we reach a certain length in prayer, he says, bingo, there you are, you got it. Whatever you just asked for, now it's yours. You reached the limit that I was looking for, you hit it. Or he's not, he doesn't have a buzzer up there, and you, you say a few particular words that sound really good, and he's, yes, that's it, that's what I was looking for, thank you for saying that. And picture that. Isn't it ridiculous? But isn't that what we do? My goodness, I tell you what, I've been guilty of that, and... If you're honest, I'm sure you have too. His response is not determined by our prayer stat sheet, praise God. Effective prayer is not based upon some business relationship or partnership, but on our, our personal relationship with God. Hypocrisy, babbling, manipulation, those are all potential problems. Jesus then gives us the formula on how to deal with it. Let's look at it quickly and we'll close. How do you avoid those problems in prayer? You pray with humility, you pray with sincerity, and you pray with faith. Pray with humility. He says, but when you pray, verse 6, go into your private room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. This is the opposite of the hypocrite. He says, go find a place somewhere where you can be alone and shut out the world, where you're not worried about being seen. Where if someone looks at you funny or doesn't like your prayer, it doesn't matter. Where there's no chance that you're going to try to impress anyone with what you're saying. Now that can be anywhere. Some folks have gone to the extreme. They literally have built a closet inside their house. And they wall themselves in. And that's fine. If that's what God calls you to do, by all means, go do it. Go, don't ask for my help because I can't build anything. But go, you go build your closet and you pray in it. That's totally fine. I think the point is that find a place somewhere, it may be a different place every day, where you can simply get alone with God and pray. Where you're not worried about what everybody else is thinking, you can shut out the world and just talk to God. And that's where we learn how to pray anyway. You want to know how to pray, you want to learn how to pray, there's a simple formula for that. Pray. It's really not hard. Focus on the private devotion instead of that public show that we're so tempted to. Jesus, of course, is not forbidding prayer in public as we've already looked at, but he's just giving them direction. How do you avoid pride in prayer? Get alone with God. Remember who the real focus is. Pray with humility. Pray with sincerity, not babbling on. Make sure that your heart and mind are engaged. And if you can't pray that way, then don't pray for that particular time. Engage your heart and mind. I think one of the ways that we can be guilty of babbling on today is to pray a, a rehearsed prayer. We've thought of it over and over and over again, and we're really going to get them because we're going to pray this prayer. Or maybe you're trying to preach in your prayers. We do anything but connect with God, and, and, and I've been guilty of that. Let me give you an example. I think it was two days ago, I was praying at lunch or dinner, and I had had a conversation with my son Hank a little bit earlier, about his incessant complaining about a particular issue. And 
And so in my prayer, not only did I thank God for the meal, but I said, Lord, please help us with our complaining. And Hank, as if he was, which he indicated he was indeed, waiting on it, said, I knew that was coming. <laughs> right in the middle of the prayer. I didn't get to amen. <laughs> I tried to hold my, Nancy lost it. She's just over there, you know. And I, I tried to, I just, what do you say at that point? You know, I mean, your six-year-old calls you out. I knew that was coming. It just, but you know, I, I learned a, a great lesson. Uh, and the Lord convicted me through both that and studying this particular passage that sometimes my prayers are not sincere. My prayers are meant to, to teach somebody something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really get them to communicate a message to somebody else as opposed to connecting with God. Silly example, but I was convicted. Jesus here condemns any prayer that's not sincere, where merely your lips are moving, maybe words coming out, but your heart and your mind are not engaged. So what about you and me? You got an example like that where you have not prayed sincerely? You uh, the kind of person who just repeats empty words? Been there? I heard a quote, all of us have one routine prayer in our system. And once we get rid of it, then we can really start to pray. And it's not about just pressing play on a CD player or an iPod or something like that and then letting the recording go. God answers prayer, certainly, but not insincere ones. And finally, we learn to pray with faith. I love this little part. When you pray, go into your private room, verse 6, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 8, your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. He sees. He knows. He rewards. We don't have to give Him instruction. We don't have to go on and on and on and on and on and on, thinking we have to somehow arouse Him to do something. He knows and He sees which can increase our faith. doesn't mean don't mention it. It just means he already sees, he already knows, he already cares, he already loves. He is your father. And he rewards. Jesus had preached a little bit earlier on these beatitudes and the things that come as a reward of faith, assurance of salvation, eternal life, peace in the midst of life's storms, reminders of his love and his faithfulness, refreshing for our souls satisfaction that cannot be explained or accomplished by any other means. Those are the rewards we receive that far and away are better than anything we can receive that's external. So just, I encourage you, this week, just place yourself before your Heavenly Father. As a child to your Father, place yourself before Him and pray. Pray with humility. Pray with sincerity. I don't care what words you say. I don't think God really does either. No magical word. Pray from your heart. Pray from your faith. And simply pray. What part of this hits close to home this morning? Obviously, the, the focal point for us is not simply a better prayer life, but an ongoing and developing and growing and thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. That also begins with faith. 
We cannot receive God's grace apart from faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. We cannot receive eternal life apart from submitting our will to His. So maybe the prayer you need to pray this morning is a prayer of repentance, a prayer of surrender, to say, yes, Lord, I receive Your grace. I know that You died for me. Maybe it's a prayer in which you turn from your sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ, the, the only one through whom we can receive salvation. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. And maybe this week you would simply get alone with God. You'd ponder Him as your Father and you'd talk to Him as someone who sees you, who knows you, who cares about you, and will reward in a way that pleases Him. I, I want to close this morning with a, a written prayer. Now, before you are impressed, I didn't write it. I copied it. But there was a South African pastor named Andrew Murray around the turn of the 20th century who was very influential and a great writer and great pastor. And I would invite you this morning to engage your heart and engage your mind as I read this prayer collectively for us and individually for, for each person here. I think it's appropriate, based upon what we've seen here in the Scripture, to close with this particular prayer. And I, I want it to be not a vain repetition of a prayer, but one in which when we hear the words, we connect with the Lord and we allow Him to change our lives. So maybe you'd like to bow your head and close your eyes in order to be able to pray this as I read it. And if not, that's okay. But here, here's our prayer to close. Blessed Savior, with my whole heart I bless you for designating the inner chamber as the school where you meet each of your pupils alone to reveal the Father to them. O oh my Lord, strengthen my faith in the Father's tender love and kindness so that when I feel sinful or troubled, my first instinctive thought will be to go where the Father waits for me and where prayer can never go unblessed. Let me know that he knows my need before I ask. This will allow me in great faith to trust that he will give what his child requires. May the place of secret prayer become the most beloved spot on earth to me. Lord, hear me as I pray that you would bless the prayer closets of your believing people everywhere. Let your wonderful revelation of the Father's tenderness free all Christians from the thought that prayer is a burden and lead them to regard it as the highest privilege of their lives, a joy and a blessing. Bring back everyone who is discouraged because they cannot find you in prayer. Make them understand that all they have to do is go to you with their emptiness because you have everything to give and you delight in doing it. Let their one thought be not what they have to take to the Father, but what the Father waits to give them. Especially bless the inner chamber of all your servants who are working for you as the place where God's truth and God's grace is revealed to them. Let them be anointed there with fresh oil daily. Let, their, let it be there that their strength is renewed and they receive in faith the blessings which, with which they are to bless their fellow men. Lord, draw us all closer to you and to the Father in prayer. Amen.